This is Sacred Tension, the podcast about the discipline of asking questions. My name is Stephen Bradford Long, and I am here with the amazing Shiva Honey to talk about her new book, The Devil's Death, Your Satanic Companion to Grief and Dying. Shiva is a great friend of mine. She has been on the show multiple times before, and it's great to have you on again. How are you, Shiva? Oh, I'm great. Thank you so much for having me, Stephen. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's such a pleasure. It's always great talking to you. Uh, Before we carry on with the conversation, though, I have to thank my patrons. So for this week, I have to thank Sean and Lena. My patrons are my personal lords and saviors. They really, really do keep this show going. For anyone listening, please go to patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. And for just $1 a month, you get extra content every single week. All benefits are unlocked at $1. I am uh, a very cheap date. You can buy me for just $1 and it helps maintain this show. And then if you are able to, you can pledge to give more. You can subscribe for more each uh, month, but that is entirely up to you. All right. With all of that out of the way. So you have a new book out. It is amazing. You sent it to me. It is gorgeous. It has like one of the most beautiful covers I think I've ever seen. Um, I was I was reading it at work and people, uh, colleagues of mine would come up just drawn to the cover and they would like touch the cover because it has like this glossy black on black design. It's beautiful. Oh, I'm so glad you appreciate it. Yeah, I um, I work with a wonderful printer that's based in in uh, the U.S. and they do they've been able to do like the gold foil for my other books. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, they, it's like this black embossed three dimensional, almost like foiled, a black foiled cover. I thought for the death book, I was like, I really would love to do a black on black for this, at least for a a relatively short run for a couple of years, maybe. Well, I can do it, but um, yeah, I'm really really happy with how it turned out. Alexander Corey. Um, helped with the the cover design. I've been working with him over the last few years on with most of my projects. And then I also had um, Francesca Daddio work on just the lettering and everything. It's been a, a wonderful process and experience working with those folks. Yeah, it, it really is a gorgeous book. I'm looking at it right now. So before we get into the book, for people who might not be familiar with who you are, tell us some about who you are and what you do. Well... I'm a member of the Satanic Temple. Uh, I was one of the founding members of the Detroit chapter, which was the first chapter of the organization back in 2014. And as such, I've been pretty, I guess, instrumental in the development of the organization over the years. For a long time, I worked kind of in the background, helping getting things organized. As as you know, Stephen, there's always, I think people forget that in such a young religion, there's so much to do. And without the resources that's, you know, say the Catholic Church or other folks have, it's, it's quite a a task to put something like this together. And it's grown so incredibly over the last 10 years. Um, So yeah, I started out kind of in the background working on those projects. And then um, I think around 2017, I was asked to start doing rituals at the Satanic Temple headquarters in Salem. And so after a number of experiences doing those group, putting together group rituals like the Black Mass and on baptism, and after, you know, years kind of developing my own ritual practice, I I decided to write a book about uh, satanic ritual uh, from a, quite a modern perspective. So that came out in 2019. And since then, I've been working on, you know, projects that are similar in scope, I suppose. And uh, the year later, I, I did an Oracle deck 
the Devil's Deck that was could be paired with the Devil's Tome, my first book. This is my third book, The Devil's Death. So I've just been really fascinated with how we can approach ritual and, you know, significant life events like death from a satanic perspective. I I felt this sort of need or passion to to work on these projects because I know that the investigations just on my own have helped me tremendously. Ritual has helped me focus and kind of make my life better over time. Going into this book, it's really helped me deal with loss of my own and helped me to understand how I can support both myself and my community um, when they're going through issues of grief and that sort of thing. So it's Mm. basically, yeah, I just kind of, I work on projects that um, have helped me understand myself better and get through life and in hopes that they'll also help other folks, I suppose. Yeah, absolutely. Let's Let's go wide for a bit. And yeah. so why why ritual? Make the case to make make the case that for people who don't necessarily believe in God or spirits or what have you, make the case why ritual is still significant to you. Yeah, it's kind of amazing that you're asking this question because like five years ago I was getting so much uh I guess, for lack of a better term, shit from people for being a ritual practitioner that was involved with non-theistic Satanism. Mm. But ever since the Devil's Tome has come out, it seems like people get it, right? So the basic argument that I would have, or the, the case I would say for ritual, is that since the dawn of time, ritual has been something that human beings have practiced, and it served many purposes. We know from like an anthropological perspective and a historical perspective, it's helped to bring people together and then from more of a psychological perspective, ritual, we're discovering now through science over the last 10 years that uh, ritual, regardless of belief in any sort of deity or anything like that, can help us do things like improve our performance, can help us deal with grief and anxiety, and can really bring an extra element, um, I'd say kind of an extra element of color to our lives and help us focus quite a bit. So as somebody who grew up with ritual in the church, uh, a church kid, probably not so unlike you. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. We are, we are church it, survivors, the two of yes, us. Yes, church survivors. <laughs> I love that term. <laughs> um, yeah, I I found, I always found ritual to be a comforting and I felt it as a way for me to, to ground myself. And, um, you know, at that point it was through an exterior sort of deity or energy. But then uh, as I grew up and separated myself from the church, I found that when I I could take that same energy and apply it internally and use it as a way to build myself up and to strengthen my understanding of myself, my understanding of my desires. So many of the rituals um, that I've written have been just about getting into the heart of what your needs are, which is something I think in our society, especially if you're coming from a background of like religious trauma, that we have been over the years discouraged from doing to know who we are as people to uh, to understand our desires, to follow our desires. And so much of my personal ritual practice is based in that sort of understanding. And, I, you know, from my personal experience, it's it's helped me so tremendously to be in tune with that and myself and to accept myself in that way. And, um, and yeah, it's just been a transformative, over the last 10 years, a really transformative force in my life. Yeah, you know, I'm doing a ritual right now, which is I, I have a deep work ritual and so I've been experimenting with rituals just in my daily life and, and kind of, how do I want to say it, sacramentalizing or, or enchanting 
specific, mm. specific, you know, routines that I have in my life. And one of those really important routines is deep work, which is a period, you know, deep work coined by Cal Newport, who's a computer scientist. And it's a, a period of intense focus on a single topic to add greater meaning and value to the world. And so it involves profound focus and so writing podcast interviews all of this stuff it's all deep work so i've set up kind of a ritualized practice for deep work where i have like a specific candle that is set apart from you know other items in the house and it is the deep work candle and lighting the candle and it's a scented candle so there's a specific scent associated with deep mm. work as well and then lighting it is like this this sacramental entering into the space of focus and then there is the the closing of the ritual at the end and if we look at it if we look at rich at, at ritual kind of from a cold rational perspective it doesn't seem like it should work right it seems pretty it, it seems pretty irrational and indefensible but when we live it when we do it the benefits are very clear <laughs> right and it's just part of human nature and it's just part of how we you know if if say a a, a um oh how do i want to say this a a com, you know completely r rational atheist and I've heard this sometimes, if a completely rational atheist were to look at ritual, very often the point, the, the response is, well, what's the fucking point? There, what's the utility to this? Because the utility, it can often feel irrational, it, but the, the rationality of it is in how it benefits human nature, how it benefits our experience. And ritual is just embedded in our lives in ways that we might not even realize. Like I was listening to a podcast recently with Chris Cavanaugh who studies ritual and he talks about like the swearing in of the president yeah, and, and how that's a really important ritual. And when Obama like messed up the wording of the ritual, he had to do it again. <laughs> like, mm -hmm. they, and they had to televise it again because he messed up the ritual. There's no yeah. why. Why? Why is that so important? It's it's human nature. It's really deep inside of us. This this isn't the terrain of the rational. This is the terrain of the experiential. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I would say it's, I would say it's, it's going to become the train of the rational. I think as science explores this more and validates it, mm. you know. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, it's, you know, it's, it's scientifically thing. validated for sure. Yeah. 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 Uh, so I, yeah, I, I guess like I, I've, in my journey, I think I've, I've kind of questioned what is rational and what is not based on like the responses mm. I've gotten from people out in various communities. But you know, like I like to use Norton and Gino. They're two, I believe they're from Harvard. They're two, they work in, they're psychologists and they specifically work in business though. So I find it very, and of course, as we know through business, like most corporations that are large have whole, you know, sort of systems designed to, to the psychology of marketing and yeah. how to appeal to consumers and stuff. So they have whole really liturgies. They, they have whole yeah, like, <laughs> like practically books of common prayer. <laughs> yeah. It's like, why are these people the ones studying ritual? It's kind of disturbing when you think about it, but anywho, these folks are kind of at the head of, of a lot of the research that's happening. And they just define ritual as a symbolic activity that's performed before, during, or after a meaningful event in order to achieve some desired outcome. And from that perspective, it just broadens, you know, I feel like it, it really broadens the concept of ritual so much from, I think, what a lot of us have thought it to be. And uh, and you were talking about before, like, those ceremonies for swearing. I think, yeah, there's ritual and ceremony. And I think those ceremonies, when we're doing it with a group, it's like, 
they're able to, I mean, ritual is able to affect us on a profound psychological level. And when we're, we're doing them with groups of people and especially in those sort of like when we're giving people our power or taking it away or however it is in these group ceremonies, it's just a really, it's a powerful way to, to I, th- I think, establish group think and also, you know, mark these momentous occasions in our lives. It's just really interesting to think about, you know? <laughs> and it's, and it, I mean, it's human nature. It goes back for as long as humans have been alive and yeah and you know what's so interesting to me is i will go to a religious service i haven't been to one in years i mean and by religious i mean theistic you know i i haven't been to a church service in you know eons or at least not since before covid but i remember like going to an episcopal service and i don't believe in the christian god right i don't believe (laughs) in in the trinity i don't believe the creeds and yet feeling so moved by mm-hmm. the liturgy just so so moved by by the and I still love christian liturgies I still love high church liturgies uh, despite all the problems that have you know that come along yeah. with them they're still just so beautiful and it's belief in the it, belief in the literal isn't necessary to have the impact of to, to experience the impact of the ritual, right? So, yeah, I mean, like just this sense of 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 union or catharsis yeah. or bliss or you know whatever other kind of altered state that that w- w- you know other altered states that people can experience during ritual belief isn't necessarily uh, required for that. Yeah, absolutely. One of the things that I found so interesting too. So my next project is going to be ritual music and uh, or that I'm working on now but that's one of the things that really got me about being in the church and especially if I were I guess from what you'd probably describe as like you know the high the high church kind of experience or whatever when you're going to the old Catholic or Presbyterian church and there's this incredible like choral music and Mm -hmm. these beautiful ancient hymns being sung it's like that really does something to you and you don't have to understand what they're saying you don't have to know or, you know, you don't have to agree with with what they're talking about, but the music can just move you so profoundly. And I was thinking there, even just when you look at like, you know, the fundamentalist church that are, are like rock and roll now and, and the way that just the way that the music's arranged and it comes in and comes out and how it affects people so profoundly and like people start crying and waving their arms and like, you know, fainting and all this. It's just so interesting to watch. That's a ritual, you know, and it's oh. like. Speaking, it's incredible. Speaking of which, I haven't talked about this on the show yet, but I really need to. I went to see just a few weeks ago. I think this was about a month ago now. I went to see the band Highlung. Oh, cool. And for people who don't know, Highlung is like this primal pagan. They look like ancient forest deities with antlers all the instruments are like bronze age instruments and it is just incredibly occultic and sublime they they opened the show with a ritual with like a cleansing ritual they closed it with a ritual and then the intermediate period was just i don't think i've ever been in a been in a space that was so completely captured by the atmosphere and the music and the ritual of it. It was just extraordinary. So for everyone who wants to see something incredible, just go look up Heilung on YouTube and it it's 
it's amazing and i think that that like demonstrates that that band for me really demonstrated just like how transformative and powerful the combination of music and ritual can be yeah i'm so bummed i missed them i feel like they came to detroit like a week or two ago and i just i think i found out right after they came um yeah they've been doing a a u.s tour um yeah it, it it's amazing Oh, wow. Yeah, I can only imagine. Uh, I've got to at least have to check out some of their stuff online. But I've, I've seen a couple clips and they looked really moving. And yeah, Mm -hmm. I've always thought about the the concert experience as a sort of the concert as a cathedral. And I felt like a lot of my most profound spiritual experiences when I was younger, despite being in the church actually happened at a rock and roll shows and stuff like that so this has that has to be incredible to see them absolutely yeah okay so death and dying i would say this is one of the most profound parts of or not profound i mean i I would say i would say that this is a a really crucial area for ritual and whenever i think of death and dying i think of this quote from the beginning of stephen king's pet cemetery have you read Pet Cemetery, by the way? I saw it when I was a child, which is, probably explains a lot of things. But no, I haven't read it. <laughs> so at the very beginning of the book, he has this, this epitaph. Yeah, here's, here's what he says about death and burial. Here are some people who have written books telling what they did and why they did those things. John Dean, Henry Kissinger, Adolf Hitler... And the list goes on. Most people also believe that God has written a book or books telling what he did and why, at least to a degree. He did those things. And since most of these people also believe that humans were made in the image of God, then he also may be regarded as a person or more properly as a person with a capital P. Here are some people who have not written books telling what they did and what they saw. The man who buried Hitler. The man who performed the autopsy on John Wilkes Booth. The man who embalmed Elvis Presley. The man who embalmed, badly, most undertakers say, Pope John XXIII. The two-score undertakers who cleaned up Jonestown, carrying body bags, spearing paper cups with those spikes custodians carry in city parks, waving away the flies. The man who cremated William Holden. The man who encased the body of Alexander the Great in gold so it would not rot. The men who mummified the pharaohs. Death is a mystery, and burial is a secret. Mm. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> Beautiful, right? Yeah, so yeah. so there's I think what that passage points to is how central rituals surrounding death are to human nature but also how forbidden they are to talk yeah. about, to discuss, to explore and how mm-hmm. um yeah, and I think that's especially true in our current culture and you touch on this how how death is so uh medicalized and and uh kind of put out of sight in a vault somewhere so that we can't see it. Yeah. So what what prompted this this book? What what or what what is this book trying to address? Yeah. Well, I guess I'll I'll put the two questions together. Um I when I wrote 
the devil's tome um one of the people that helped me with the book was betty she ended up um editing the book for me or was one of the editors for me for my first book and after i released the devil's tome i released the devil's tome just as covid had happened so you know it ended up impacting people really strongly and one of the most common questions i would get was you know I'm dealing with incredible grief or somebody close to me has died. Do you have any? And I had one ritual for death, uh, Memento Mori in the book, but it was just something that I could see affecting people very strongly and something, you know, we were in the middle of this incredible like national sense of grief for which I think there've been very few moments in as an American or whatever that we've experienced up to this point. And there was so much loss happening that it became something that I felt really need to be explored in our community because I think as a whole uh, American culture and a lot of ways Christian culture uh, which is you know something that many Americans describe to really has a death problem and has uh, you know kind of exists in the sense of deniability mm. and I have a, a oh go ahead well, let's let's pause on that for a second because when I think about this am I the only one who has like this deep eerie weird feeling when we can when i consider just how much the deaths from covid19 aren't talked about oh no like, that's it's, that was yeah. it's so weird and you know i was listening to andrew sullivan who's kind of a, a longtime gay activist and he said that during the AIDS crisis in the 80s and 90s, you know, the beginnings of the AIDS crisis, one of the things that really moved people to action were the photographs, were the photographs of death, of the deathbed. And he's like, what's so eerie about this period is that there are no photographs. There, mm. is, there, is, yeah. there is no visual evidence of COVID deaths. Mm -hmm. At least not in not like in the popular psyche, at least not in like the, yeah. the psyche of the population. It's weird. And it's like, how is it that we've just gone through this massive crisis and we're still going through it? Yeah, I and, mean, yeah, this is. Yeah. Oh, go ahead. Well, and none of us. How is it that we're that we're going through this massive crisis? And it's like we we aren't actually thinking or talking or considering or seeing images of the death and the dying. Yeah, it's it's really fascinating that you bring that up. I mean, that was in my the back of my mind this whole time. My husband has worked in like the restaurant industry for a long time too, and that's one of the industries where you know, as many people have probably experienced, there's such a loss of of workers at this point. But that's because people in the restaurant industry, like line cooks, that was a profession that had some of the most deaths out of any professions within the United States. But it's just incredible. I mean, I started out the introduction. I said, you know, death and grief are two experiences inextricably linked to our human existence. They lurk like specters in the background of our lives. We ignore them as we can, hoping they'll disappear, fearing that if we pay them attention, that they'll materialize into a force that will shatter the comfort of our lives. But COVID has brought these violent forces from shadows into reality, bringing with it tremendous loss. And at that time, when I was finishing up the book, I think it was February or January or February of this year, you know, more than 350 million people's uh, people had been infected with COVID and experienced long-term disability. We've had over 5 million people that have died worldwide from COVID. I'm sure those numbers are much higher now, but That's it's just, crazy. it's insane. It's insane. And, and it's like the fact that everybody, I think in the States, at least everybody's kind of, well, not everybody, but a great percentage of the population is quote unquote you know, trying to get back to normal and nobody's really addressing these issues of grief. Uh, like, yeah, the mental health toll, the death toll, 
you know, the incredible loss that we collectively have experienced as human beings. It feels like, again, it's just been swept under the rug and, you know, for industry and whatever else. So it's just so, so disturbing to me. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, my my uh, cousin died of covid. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, yeah. I mean, it. it's uh, it's crazy. <laughs> it's just mm-hmm. this, this inability to to talk about it or or really process it. So is part of the reason that America that that the United States is having issues with death is is do you do you sometimes wonder if that's because we don't have clear rituals for death? We don't have we don't have a, you know, good outlets in a way that maybe we used to within specific religious tradition. Say what you will about, you know, uh, traditional religions. They've caused lots of harm. They've done, you know, untold amounts of damage in the world, but they also served a purpose. And one of those purposes was to provide rituals for for situations in life that are otherwise too painful to confront. Yeah, I, you know, I don't think I have an answer for it. I have some thoughts. Sure, I, what are I your thought thoughts? I've thought about this a lot. Um, <laughs> I don't know. A lot of it to me goes, when I look at like, when I did a lot, I did a lot of research on, you know, even just the healthcare industry and, and you know, economically how death is handled and that sort of thing. But when you look into it, America, there's a couple of elements that I think have impacted the way that we deal with death. One of it, I think, is, it's kind of like the the old Protestant work ethic and also industry, mm. capitalism, the church and capitalism being very, very connected here. So my, my personal experience with death and when I was a part of the church and what I viewed as an outsider as well, I don't feel like Christians really do a great job with this any better than, I mean, within the United States at least, any better than anybody else, despite the fact they have religion. I think maybe in other countries, you know, in other or other sects of Christianity that I hadn't experienced there's like a, a better sort of acceptance of death. But in my experience, um, folks are just kind of, they're so focused on the afterlife that they don't really allow themselves to grieve in the present or be really present oh, in that yeah. way. You know, and then when you think about industry, I mean, you look at like, just even look at like, you know, this, as we all well know, you know, I mean, we have like no vacation time in the States. We have basically no time for grieving, just the rules around how, if you can even take any time off of work, you know what I mean? It's, I feel like culturally it's all about production and moving forward and, Mm. you know, and facade, you know, I think so much, I think there's a facade that comes from both capitalism and the church to some extent where where you have to pretend you're somebody else. You have to, I think in, in my experience in the church, any sort of wrong that was done to me or any pain that I was experiencing, it had to either be expressed as in sort of, this element of worship in the church itself when I was there, or it had to be sublimated. And so I don't think I was ever for anything that happened to me when I was a part of the church, ever given any space to grieve or to talk about anything that was uncomfortable. Whereas I think we as Satanists now we have, I, I think that like we are some of the best people to actually like take this head on and maybe make some cultural changes, you know, within at least I'm speaking from again, an American's perspective, but I feel like we are, a lot of us have been fascinated with death. We're, I find that in my exploration of death, the things that it taught me have really been, you know, not only how to, to plan for a good death, but plan for a good life and, you know, live live more attuned to my desire. And, and I deal, talk a lot about that in the beginning of the book. But um, these are something now that we can cultivate as Satanists. Um, and I think we can, you know, in so many ways, we 
our culture turns the dominant culture on its head. And I think this is another way that we can do this. I have seen, though, um, like I became a death doula last year, and there seems to be a growing awareness um, and a growing acceptance of new death practices. I feel like things are shifting slowly but surely. But it, we really have to have a deep cultural shift and we have to have like an economic shift and, and all of these things, I think, from a global scale to really to make things change. However, we can still on an individual level and within our own community start to implement, you know, a different culture to to create healthy spaces for grief and to create ritual for death and to create like a death positive sort of movement within the work that we do. Yeah, I think you're right. I mean, when it comes to Christianity, I mean, I'm just thinking, I mean, specifically United States Christianity, just thinking back to some of the experiences that I've had in regards to death within Christianity. And like when I was 19 years old and I was in a shooting when I was in a missions organization, I remember the next week the 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 leaders of this missions organization got every put brought everyone gathered together in the hallway together i might have already told this story at some point on the podcast but he, they gathered everyone together in that hallway and they said on the count of 3 we're going to shout i forgive you you know meaning the the perpetrator who killed mm. our literally killed our friends a week a week after it happened and then it was just kind of like expected to just be okay and they cleaned up the hallway and then it was back to normal. And it's, that's horrifying. It's just, that's just not how it works. <laughs> but, yeah. but you're right. It's like it, because there's this emphasis on, on, you know, the afterlife and ultimate spiritual reality and so on, there was this expectation that somehow we should just, I should just be able to move on. <laughs> <laughs> right mm -hmm. and um that that's just not human nature that's just not how it works no not at all and i feel like that's that's like one of the messages that i think again when you just look at grief from like a broad perspective my experience in and culture within the united states is just it's just you know the the message to move on get over it and just keep working essentially is like the message that i felt like i got so much and, um, mm. and if people, you know, the comfort that you were able to get from people, my experience a lot of times was just like, oh, well, everything happens for a reason. Or, you know, you know, if somebody passed, like they're going to a better place or you'll see them in the afterlife. So it's like, how do you even like, if that's all we get, I'm still hungry. Like, what am I supposed to do with these feelings I have? You know what I mean? Like, this doesn't, this doesn't provide any source of catharsis for me or, or, mm. you know, peace or anything like that. It's just, yeah, it's just not enough. You know, this is a really bizarre question. You're you're like my I, I call us woo Satanists. You're you're <laughs> one of my you're one of my few woo Satanist friends. So we'll go in the woo direction. Sure. <laughs> but in in I feel like so much of my grief for people who have passed who are meaningful to me, a lot of that grief has come up and been processed in dreams. Mm. Like I will I I will have dreams where I experience such deep grief. I mean, just like levels of grief that it feels like it should just break my body, <laughs> like your yeah. whole body hurts, your whole mind hurts kind of grief. And then I wake up from it as if a fever has broken. Yeah. 
and there's this sense of catharsis, you know, and so I'll still have dreams about my grandmother who passed in 20, in 2009. And at first the dreams were, were much more intense and more frequent. And now they're much less. So it's almost like I'm, I'm processing through it. Am I, do you have, have you had that experience of like grief and dreams? It's so funny. You should mention that actually, because within the last year or so, I started writing down my dreams as much as possible because I do, I don't think it's wooey. I think they're a window to our subconscious, you know, I guess if we're still using the term subconscious and it's, it's like when you have a wound or anything else, sometimes your body needs to shut down and process things. And I think dreams are a way for us to really get to places that we don't can't get through our ego or our conscious life, you know? So yeah, I've had, you know, I've been diagnosed with PTSD or, and so I had nightmares for a long time relating to stuff that had happened to me as a kid. And I still, even like yesterday, I had a nightmare about some family stuff. And unfortunately I do not feel catharsis after I wake up from those dreams. The negativity just kind of sits with me, but usually Mm. like it brings me, I think now that I'm like writing my dreams down and thinking about why they'd be happening, it does bring me insight. And that's the part that brings catharsis because I, I get to understand myself a bit more and the situation at hand. But during the writing of this book, I was actually just starting the grief chapter and my dad died, who I had been, I had not been in contact with for like five years, maybe five or six years because, you know, he was abusive. And I mean, just the week before he died, I had a crazy nightmare about him and, Hmm. um, you know, preceding the death. I was writing this book as I was having these nightmares, but to me, they were a way of, they were a way of like trying to understand what had happened between us and um, processing his death. And, you know, that was another thing that came out of writing the book that I felt so was so powerful was that there aren't many people that talk about what happens when somebody around you dies that you've has been abusive toward you or you've had like a very complex relationship with nobody really wants to talk bad about the dead nobody there had there wasn't a lot of advice that i didn't really get any advice through my doula program about this there isn't a lot of stuff written about it so i felt it very important to talk about my own experience with the grief that uh, occurred after the death of my father and the weird emotional sort of like emotional storm that happened um, that's very unpredictable after that. So I spent a lot of time in the chapter writing about that. But yeah, within like when I, he first passed, like I had quite a few dreams that were very, very kind of upsetting. And then as time has passed now, and it actually in my waking life, I can kind of reflect on our relationship more and like find some sort of, you know, peace or understanding with it. Things have, have chilled out quite a bit. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's very weird. Dreams, I feel like I feel like that's another thing. And because we're, we're constantly like, I have the luxury of this being my job full time. So I'm able to like wake up when I need to and take time to write things down. And I think because I was given this luxury or built it for myself or whatever, that's a lot of the reason I'm able to do this work as well, because it takes a lot of time and a lot of like emotional discovery through my own life to be able to write these books and do this sort of thing. But I find that, you know, it's the dreams, our dreams can teach us a lot. And, but again, because we're constantly having to move forward and like, put these limitations on ourselves and because industry calls us capitalism exists and doesn't want us to be full people to, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. it, it keeps us away from being aware of those things. You know, it keeps us from being present in our inner journeys. Um, mm-hmm. We don't have time. We don't have time for it. Like capitalism prevents introspection in a lot of ways. And like the ability for us to, to work on our own emotional wounds and our grief and all of this. Yeah, it it doesn't allow us to have time to not be productive. Yeah. And yeah, I feel like there's something analogous between dreams and ritual and Mm -hmm. and their 
cathartic power or their their illuminatory power and yeah it, i maybe i i might want to like tease out that connection some more at, at some point in, in writing or podcasting or something um, i love that i'd love to talk to you more about it too because i haven't i haven't like looked into the science of dreams for a while but obviously the, like ritual it's been something that we've it's been present in our reality yeah. since the dawn of time you know absolutely one part of your book that i find really interesting is pro is protecting your bodily autonomy in yeah. your own death. Could you talk some about that? Like what what are the hurdles to actually having bodily autonomy? Because I think that a lot of people might be surprised by how little autonomy there is in death. Yeah, well I'll talk about like two elements of it. The, the healthcare industry and then I'll talk about the funeral industry. And uh, I we explored this so Betty Betty Lee who's one of my co-authors and I explored this. Uh, she has an incurable illness. And she has had, you know, a horrendous time navigating the health system. She's a PhD biologist, mind you, and still at this level of like understanding of how things are supposed to work. And I imagine, I think she also worked in some health systems before, has had just a hell of a time getting people to listen to her, getting doctors to take her seriously, um, you know, having doctors be open to like alternative therapies, whatever it is. Um, it's just an absolute nightmare. And I worked in the healthcare industry before. Uh, I quit my corporate job. And so I have like a, like a very keen understanding of like how this all works. And it's, it's really, really disturbing. And it's something that I thought and that we both thought was very important to talk about in this book. And as Satanists, believing that our body is inviolable, this is something that we really want to bring home to people who are thinking about, you know, planning a good death or even just, you know, maintaining inviolability in life. So I'll, I'll give you a couple of interesting like facts about first of all, the healthcare system. So, you know, I think a lot of times there's this, there's this idea that doctors or people in the medical field are these infallible gods of sorts, you know, and the reality is that's just not the case. Like everybody's doing the best they can, but like, you know, ultimately you're the person who knows the best about what should be happening with your body and has to make the decisions as to, to what you want to do to, take care of it in your own way, essentially. And to illustrate that, um, you know, preventable medical errors are a leading cause of death in the United States. So more than 1,000 people each day die from preventable medical errors in hospitals oh, within the United States. That, that's fucking nightmare fuel right there. Yes. Oh, my God. Yes. <laughs> that's when horrifying. I, so I, I worked, let me give you another illustration. I worked in uh, specifically like quality improvement and patient, like patient improvement, patient care outcomes improvement that sort of thing in healthcare. So I was specifically concerned with how do we reduce complications? How do we reduce death? How do we improve the patient experience? And one of the stories, and you can look this up online, like, I mean, one of the earlier stories of like, you know, medical breakthrough in the 90s was just telling doctors that it was scientifically proven that if you wash your hands before you do surgery, complications will decrease. So once they they just they made that a guideline and they like implemented it across the healthcare spectrum and like complications decreased so so significantly and it was simply from just having doctors wash their hands before they go into surgery. It's like the things that you would expect would be taken care of really aren't. It's it's a dangerous place. The health hospitals a dangerous place, the healthcare industry is dangerous. Um, especially in a place like the United States where we're just not given adequate 
access to anything. Yeah, um, I, I was actually speaking of this a couple of weeks ago. I found myself at a party, you know, it, it was like in a, in a neighborhood. It was like a neighborhood party thing. And I was just sitting there, you know, drinking a glass of wine. And because I'm me, apparently this one medical worker just started regaling me with like the most grisly, horrific stories from the past week that she had witnessed. She's a she she uh, does surgeries. She's a physician's assistant. She works in a hospital and was just recounting the horrific mistakes that she had witnessed just in the past week. And I was like, I don't know how I found myself in this situation having this conversation, but this is horrific. <laughs> I'm happy to listen, but holy shit. Yeah. So there's it's these like almost, nightmare fuel. It is. I mean, and I don't, you, you know, just I, I can go down the rabbit hole a tiny bit with you on this. So that's like almost like the mechanical errors, right? That happened. Yeah. But then within the system, there's these incredible biases that happen. There's discrimination on race, sex, gender, sexuality that cause tremendous disparities in the quality of patient care and lead to unnecessary death and illness. And, you know, the number of religiously affiliated healthcare facilities is growing. Yep. And so that also, you know, compounds the attacks on bodily autonomy. So just a couple of statistics, because I think you're probably you probably be into them. But, you know, there was literally a study that came out a couple months ago that said, one point, uh, there were 1.3 million surgical patients that were studied. And when operated on by a male surgeon versus a female surgeon, women are 15% more likely to suffer a bad surgical outcome and 32% more likely to die. Holy so, shit. That is fucking terrifying. Yeah, that is that is just unspeakably horrific. Yeah. I mean, and so like women are generally aren't, you know, there's again, scientific proof. There's They're not taken seriously about their pain issues. They're, they're not... You know, like they're more likely to die of heart attacks due to bias in decision and treatment. Mm. There's there's so many terrible things that happen. And of course, this is compounded if you're a person of color. There's, um, you know, I'm trying to look up this one. OK, so, yeah, black American Indian and women native to Alaska who were found to be 3.3 times more likely to die from pregnancy or its complications compared with white women. So racism plays a huge issue. Mm. Um, there's just you know, generally speaking, there's there's a very real bias that happens uh, around race in, within the medical industry, too, where people of color have much worse outcomes than white people do in the United States. Um, and then compound that also with LGBTQIA patients and that there has just been tremendous discrimination and continues to be discrimination, especially around uh, trans patients, that it's just you know, it's just not a safe place if you want to protect your body, really. And it's I think like it's hard to hear. But like, you know, one of the reasons this book took longer to write is because we did so much. Both she and I, uh, Betty and I are researchers. So we like literally look through all the, the things that have been published and like, we're like, hey, everybody, <laughs> like we really serious. You know, we started the chapter out on healthcare by talking about this because we're like, you really need to understand the depth of like, you know, how fucked up the healthcare system is. Yeah. And I mean, and, and how much little autonomy one has there. I mean, I mm -hmm. one one area of this that I find particularly fascinating slash horrific is how perceptions of of people's pain are different based mm -hmm. on their identity. Yeah. And, and that to me is just just tragic and horrific. People of color are perceived as having a higher pain threshold than white people, which means that they tend to 
just suffer more in the medical world. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they are just put through much more anguish because white people perceive them as being able to take more pain. And it's is that's it so is, fucked up. It is so <laughs> fucked up. It's a it's just a form of dehumanization. And mm-hmm. and there are similar similar air, you know, perceptions of pain and, and variance in how we perceive pain with with various uh, uh, identity and and so on. It's very, you know, different intersectional stuff. Yeah, there is um, another quote. Let me get to this one, too. Let me see. So in terms and so going back to what you were talking about, too with transgender patients once so there a number of transgender patients were sur- surveyed and a third of them have reported having to educate their doctor about care within the last year to just simply receive appropriate care and nearly half of the patients surveyed reported discrimination within the prior year and um and that is just amplified absolutely with bipoc patients wow. and it's just horrifying and then to, to kind of like all right so then the, the other part of that of course is that you know, as of 2016, almost 19% of hospitals within the United States were religiously affiliated. So that means that many of these places restrict or ban medical treatments that don't align with their religious convictions. So even if you're a practitioner that has independent belief, like if you decide to act on that independent belief, say, you know, to say to give somebody like a gender affirming surgery or something like that, or, or, or consider gender affirming treatment, you can just like get kicked out of the facility and the, the facility itself can lose money or licensing um, from, you know, the, the funding sort of church, mm. essentially. And the Catholic Church is the largest non-governmental health provider in, in the world, right? So, I yep. mean, internationally, you're thinking about this and you're just like, holy shit. From 20, 000, 2001 to 2016, the number of acute care hospitals that are Catholic-owned or affiliated grew by 22%. So, it's just like, it keeps on yeah. growing you know have you have you heard of the book the power worshipers um, i think i've heard of it i haven't read yeah, it it's it's fantastic i i forget the woman's name something stewart uh is the author she recounts this horrifically traumatic experience where there was a complication with her pregnancy and she was rushed to a hospital but it turned out to be a catholic hospital mm. and they just let her bleed and bleed and bleed to the point that her life was at risk to the point that she was like on the verge of death and then they intervened Mm. because the protocols that they follow required them to do that it was a catholic church it was oh yeah i mean just completely awful and traumatic yeah if you want something really fucked up to look into, look into the ethical and religious directives for Catholic healthcare services. So this yes. is that's the set of directives that were created by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops that, you know, they explicitly banned contraceptives, fertility treatments. I've got a quote in the book about, you know, just when they'll intervene, like in that situation with the author or in the cases of rape, it's just like it's absolutely horrifying what they have written mm. out, you know, and and so many of these Catholic institutions, again, these institutions that are the largest non-governmental provider of healthcare services, they are governed by those things. Yeah, so and you don't necessarily just... know. I mean, and and here's the important part is it's easy to say, oh, well, just don't go to one of those hospitals. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes, A, it is the only option in your area, or B, if there is an emergency 
sometimes you will just find yourself at one. Yep. And and it's just the luck of the draw. And if you're in an emergency, you will just find yourself in one of these hospitals and suddenly you are, you know, your medical care is adhering to some crazy draconian, uh, you know, theocratic approach to medicine. And yeah, it's nuts. So what are some, of course, people are going to have to read your book, but what are some ways that Satanists and uh, others who who value bodily autonomy, what are some ways that they can um, protect their bodily autonomy in death? Yeah, well, I actually have a website too. It's called mydeathwishes.org. And a lot of the stuff I talk about, at least you know, parts of it are available freely on that website because I did want to maintain a free resource for people. Um, some of my writings on there, some of the like the checklists and tools that are in the book, you can actually print out from the website and you can freely access it as needed now. So again, mydeathwishes.org is the website there. But yeah, there's, um, well, it's like multi-layered, right? So there's, in terms of healthcare, you know, certain things that you can do, you know, our research, we talked about before, um, you know, sometimes you're in a bad situation and can't do anything, but a lot of times you're, you are able to research providers and healthcare facilities to see if there are some that are um, aligned with your beliefs, or at least, you know, not operating under any sort of repressive directive. So that's very important. Researching your doctor is important. Um, you can do things like create a care team. So, you know, make sure that your doctors are talking to each other, especially if you have complex medical issues. Use an advocate. So that can be really helpful, especially if you're feeling uncertain and not confident in speaking on your own behalf or feeling intimidated. And that's the thing. It's like, again, there's there's evidence that a great majority of people are incredibly intimidated when they step into the doctor's office. So sometimes you feel like you can't even, mm. you know, you can't even advocate for yourself at all. So bringing in an advocate, and that's something that it could be a friend or a family member, or you know, a lot of times there are professional advocates available for patients as well. Now that's becoming more and more practiced. I would say one of the most important things to do, um, and we've got, I've got like a template you can take to the doctor's office that's on the website and in the book um, to help guide your, your doctor's appointments. Um, and then from like, there's a lot of other stuff that you can do, but just to summarize some of the other findings, when it comes to like funeral planning and funeral arrangements, um, some of the most important stuff you, you can do is really plan ahead. So basically like try to understand what your needs and goals are in your healthcare treatment and in death. And within the first chapter of the book, we have several rituals that you can go through that are very practical that help you kind of identify the fears that you hold in all of these areas, as well as like what you'd like your death to be like or what you'd like your medical care to be like. Um, so, so kind of figuring that out, number one, is very important. Um, then documenting your wishes uh, for end of life care or, you know, just healthcare in general, depending on where you're located in the world, there are different um there are different documents that you can use to write these things out. And the book I give an, and on the website I give a number of options and, and ways to find out what's what's applicable where you live. Um, letting your loved ones know about what your preferences are and what documents you have in place is also very important, so that that can help um, guide what you want to have happen to you, both in the medical uh, in medical care as well as after you die. Uh, I've got a whole chapter on funeral arrangements and uh, the importance of planning ahead for that. And also just understanding that you can basically do whatever 
you know, almost whatever you want with your body once you're dead. But the thing that that makes that possible is making sure that you have a plan ahead of time and that the people that you've created a team of people to advocate for you. So I came up with like a relatively novel concept called a death party. So like people have wedding parties, I was like, everybody really needs a death party. You need like a crew of people <laughs> that can you can talk to about with these things, talk to you about these things. And that will, once you die, like advocate on your behalf and, you know, be able to carry out your wishes as you'd like. So I think it's, it's really important. And it gets back to this idea that we need to have these conversations and we, we need to think that they're part of our, part of our life and they're part of living well. And they're, that also we're able to more and more rely on community. And I get, I think that's another thing getting back to why we die so badly is that, People are so like our culture is so individualistic. We need to like get back to this idea that we can, as a community, come together for each other and um, help each other out and Mm. advocate for each other. And especially when it comes to things like bodily autonomy and you know helping folks through grief or just you know through a rough time. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, too many people are dying alone, Mm -hmm. and. yeah. And and also, you know, I've I've actually been doing a lot of work on uh death and dying and pre-planning for a for a different project that I'm doing. Mm-hmm. And I cannot emphasize enough how important it is for everyone listening to this to to pre-plan for their own death. I know it sounds weird, I know it sounds morbid, but the things that can go wrong if we don't and the amount of grief that we are causing and the amount of additional stress and grief that we're causing for our loved ones if we don't is just enormous. So yep. <laughs> if there's if there's one thing <laughs> that people can take from this is please pre-plan your death. It's very very important. Yeah, absolutely. That's what I found in the research. I mean, it's like $8,000 on average to have a cremation or burial within the United States. And if the thing is, you know, what I mean, if you have if you're leaving people without any instruction as to what to do, like you said, there's going to be just a lot of anxiety and, you know, there's going to be a lot of uncertainty. It's such an empowering thing to be able to pre-plan this and to, yeah. you know, it just makes a lot of sense to me. Yeah, same. Absolutely. Well, so my plans for my own death, I, I love my cats so much that when I die... I want my corpse to be put in a room with them and they can eat my body. Nice. That's my plan. No, I'm kidding. Actually, my plan <laughs> is to be cremated and then I will become kitty litter. Oh, that's okay. Also, that's also my plan. One of those two. That's no, I'm cool. Kidding. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. <laughs> I was like, that's unique. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is not the plan. Um, no, you really want to be shot into space, right? Like that's that's the plan. I want to be shot into space. Actually, I think... I, you know, the body farm thing is definitely appealing to me, just like mm-hmm. rot out in the woods. I'm down with that. Or in the yeah. trunk of a car. I'm down with that. <laughs> the trunk of a car. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, I think we're coming up on the hour, but this has been fantastic. For people who want to find your work, where can they do that? Yeah. So this book, The Devil's Death, you can find on my website, serpentina.com or mydeathwishes.com. Um, the TST shop also carries it online. So you yep. can buy it through there as well as a number of my other uh, works. So yeah, uh, mydeathwishes.org has a lot of the things that we talked about today, uh, resources for those things on the website. And uh, I'm continuously building that up too. So 
as to offer free resources for the community as needed. Beautiful. And it's, it's really, really needed. So I'm so glad that you're doing this work. Um, is there anything else that you want to add, anything you want to plug, anything you feel like uh, we didn't discuss that you would like to discuss in this conversation? I think the only the only other thing is I'm very excited. Um, around the, the middle of October, I'm releasing my next project, my next campaign, which is going to be focused on ritual music, ritual music to accompany my first book, The Devil's Tome. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, and just keep your eyes open. Amazing. Yeah. And I will be sharing that all over social media as well when it comes out. So definitely. And we, you know, we can also always do another conversation when that happens. So hit me up. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You're welcome back anytime. All right. Well, that is it for this show. The music is by 11D7. The theme song is Wild. You can find it on Apple Music, Spotify, or wherever you listen to music. The show is written, produced, and edited by me, Stephen Bradford Long, and it is made possible by my patrons at patreon.com forward slash Stephen Bradford Long. As always, hail Satan, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.